Welcome back to the second episode of Unscriptured, a podcast focusing on early Christianity from a historical perspective. Each week, a so-called expert, myself, Kevin Skull, is joined by a guest who is highly interested in early Christianity, but hasn't had the opportunity to pursue it with the same depth. This week, I'm joined once again by my colleague, Casey. He's an inquisitive man who asks insightful questions, but has little knowledge of this week's topic, Paul of Tarsus, the Apostle to the Gentiles. This is a topic that inspired me to pursue my PhD work, and has fascinated me for years. We explore a wide variety of topics, such as Paul's mission, his connection to Jesus, and his letter-writing process. After last week's show, I heard from a number of people asking about my credentials as the so-called expert of the show, so here is a little bit of my background. After moving to Los Angeles, uh, I made some relationships with professors at Long Beach State, so I decided to start my graduate work there. Um, I got a master's in religious studies. Uh, after finishing that degree, my interest was so piqued in early Christianity that I decided to explore academia further uh, and enrolled in the PhD program at UCLA in ancient history. At the time, I was very fortunate. We had a number of you know world-renowned professors in fields like uh, ancient Greece, ancient Rome, Byzantine history. I took classes with all of them and absorbed all this amazing con contextual information. Uh, but then most importantly, I worked closely with uh, Dr. S. Scott Barchi, who was my mentor, and he was the main professor in early Christianity. And our interests overlapped substantially. He had a major interest in Paul, as did I, and I learned a ton from him uh, and his scholarship. But more importantly, I learned from him uh, uh, his ability to connect with people, to connect with students, his desire to connect not only with graduate students, but with undergraduates as well. And that has really informed how I think about the material and try to make it accessible uh, to others. Uh, after finishing my PhD work, uh, I taught as a lecturer at UCLA for about five years, at USC as well, um, other schools in the Los Angeles area. Uh, asked me to lecture there as well. I wasn't always able to find time to do that. Uh, but about three years ago, I decided to take a one-year, basically, hiatus from academia and teach high school and just see what that would be like trying to connect and make accessible this material that I've been studying for years to a younger audience. I've really enjoyed it. So this one-year hiatus has turned into a three-plus-year hiatus, and that is a little history of me and my credentials. So let's get on with our second episode of Unscriptured, and I bring you Paul of Tarsus, Apostle to the Gentiles. All right, well, welcome back once again, Casey. It's great having you back. How are you doing uh, these days? Thanks for having me back, Kevin. I am thrilled to be here, doing well. Nice, nice. Okay. Well, today's episode is focusing on Paul of Tarsus. Um, what's been really interesting for me in my life, this is the person I've spent the most time studying in my graduate work. And when I tell people, uh, they'll say, what was your focus? And I'll say, Paul of Tarsus. They'll go, who? I've never heard of that. And I'll say, uh, how about St. Paul? I'm like, oh, St. Paul. Why didn't you just say so? Of course I know who St. Paul is. Um, so, Casey, what has been your knowledge and interaction have you ever heard of paul have you heard of paul minimally like what's been your interaction with him 
That's a great question. I have heard of him. I don't know that much about him, but I find his name popping up in a lot of reading I'm doing in later eras. So I find my understanding of Paul is less Paul himself and more the use of Paul by later people to make claims about faith. Mm, yeah, that, that's really important. And we'll definitely have a whole show on Martin Luther and how he interacts with Paul at a later point. Uh, but that, that is so true that later authors, especially in the Reformation, are really drawing from Paul and his sort of interpretation of Christianity and his letters as inspiration. Um, real quick, I, I do want to point out this distinction between St. Paul and Paul of Tarsus. So when you use a phrase like St. Paul, often what that, that phrase might sound innocent, but it's actually quite loaded, right? It's really basically saying you're adopting a sort of Catholic interpretation of who Paul is and what he stands for within this religion. And so you'll see a lot of Pauline scholars really rather referring to him as Paul of Tarsus rather than St. Paul to try to kind of remove that inherent bias and more describe him as a person from a region rather than looking at him through the lens of how a church has decided he should be viewed. So I just think that's an interesting thing to sort of get out of, way, out of the way right at the beginning here. So does that, is it fair to say there's a different Paul depending on whether you're talking about St. Paul or Paul of Tarsus? I think so. I think depending on how you think of him, there's actually a whole bunch of embedded answers to questions. Um, one of them is often just the simplest question of like, what did he write? Um, and this is something we'll probably spend a whole show on at some later point, but there are a whole bunch of letters that bear his name in the New Testament. Uh, but Pauline scholars have decided that there are seven that are definitely written by Paul. There are a handful that are disputed, and that means maybe were written by him, and different scholars will champion different documents as definitely written by him or not written by him. And then there's a set of three documents that people put aside as sort of these like later documents that, that a later author or perhaps a Pauline school that developed um, wrote letters in his name to answer new questions for, that are contemporary for them. Uh, what I find especially fascinating about this is uh, I had a friend when I was at UCLA um, and she was more involved in um, a conservative church, but she was getting a, a, a PhD at UCLA. So it was this really cool interaction. And one day in class, we're having this seminar and the professor's talking about the seven authentic letters of Paul. And she leans in and she goes, I forget, which one do you guys think are the ones he definitely wrote? Because to her, it's an absurd question because he wrote them all. Um, but there are these, you know, weird scholars out there that have identified only seven as definitely written by him. And by the way, if you include uh, letters beyond the seven, you have this totally different picture of even what Paul said, because they say profoundly different things about important topics such as like the rights of women. Um, in the seven authentic letters, he clearly identifies female leaders in these early Christian communities and talks about their importance. And then you see in these later letters, uh, passages such like um, women's only women should never teach a man. And they are sort of like 
redeemed in the eyes of God through the ability to bear children. And those are just such radically different ways to think about what a woman's role is in this early community that depending on how you prioritize, prioritize these letters and how you say which ones are authentic to him, it totally changes who he even is. I've heard him called um, terrible things about his role and attitude towards women. And the Paul I know in the seven authentic letters is incredibly progressive towards women. So it's really challenging for me to hear like, he's a chauvinist. And I'm like, what? That's, that's so far from the way I view Paul um, in the seven letters uh, that, that we have de- uh, decided are authentic, that it's just, it doesn't resonate at all with me. That's interesting. So who is the this Paul that we get from those seven letters? If you were to look at those seven letters, what's the image of Paul that you would leave with? Yeah, that's such a great question. And even that is sort of heavily disputed. Um, and and I, I'm going to take a step back from that question for just a moment and sort of like introduce Paul. Um, I think the way that most people would know him is he is the apostle to the Gentiles. While we had Jesus and the earliest apostles mostly in Jerusalem, like we talked about last time, talking to Judeans about Jewish matters, interacting with Jewish texts, Paul and a number of other people like him who we don't have works by. So Paul sort of gets like all the credit here when he's really just one of many of these people that are going outside of Judea and spreading this message uh, to a wider audience. And Paul's goal is to spread it to everyone. Uh, His ultimate goal is to get to Spain um, and be able to spread the message there. And so he writes to all these different communities and travels to these communities in order to spread this message as widely as possible. So what's his connection with Jesus, who we talked about last time, if he's spreading the message, what is the message he's spreading and where is he getting it from? That is one of the trickiest questions about Paul and and sort of studying Paul and figuring this out. Because in his own letters, in his own words, he gives very little information about this. And it's this very mysterious thing where he gives you the impression that he's like had some sort of encounter with him, um, p- perhaps in some sort of vision situation. And he also seems to be implying that he has regular conversations with him, that it wasn't just like a one-time inspirational meeting, but that he is well-versed in the desires of Jesus. Um, and we see this sort of come up in confrontation with Jesus's brother, and the uh, other apostles who are situated in Jerusalem and sort of the conflicts they have with those in Jerusalem saying, "Um, I know what Jesus would have said here because he was my brother. And Paul saying, well, that's well and good, but I've spoken to him since he's been dead. And I have like the most up to date, you know, sort of version of what's happening. Um, And then it gets problematized a little bit more because there's this whole other source called the book of acts which has all of this information that we don't get from paul's letters and so this is a whole nother question about like how much how much value do you put in the historicity of this document because in this document lays out sort of like why paul even converted to this movement in the first place that he's like 
on a horse and he's blinded and then someone comes along and takes him in and they don't want to take care of Paul because he's, you know, been persecuting them. And an angel tells him like, no, you got to help this guy. He's going to be on our side. Um, and it's like this whole heroic transformation. Um, but none of that in this is in his letters, which is fascinating. And so you could say, well, then it's obviously not true because Paul would have mentioned it. But what we haven't mentioned yet is what is the point of Paul's letters? And Paul's letters are not like this biography where he's like, hello, everyone. I am Paul. Here is my biography. He does drop biographical nuggets, but in uh, the pursuit of persuading his audience of some greater purpose, whether it is to um, answer questions that they're offering, whether it is to defend his status as uh, an apostle. Um, he has a wide variety of letters answering a wide variety of questions. So Paul sees himself in direct conversation with or dialogue with Jesus, even in the afterlife, and he is has a mission to go spread the word. Is that accurate? Yeah, I would say that's quite accurate. Yeah, his his goal in life is to spread this word as much as possible. Um, it seems that the apostles and Jesus's brother James in Jerusalem are wanting to keep this a Jewish movement that's, you know, a, a sect of Judaism, essentially, an interpretation of Judaism, whereas it seems like Paul is embracing a notion that in the end times, we need to open up Judaism to those who have always wanted to be a part of this movement. Um, we see all these reports of these people called God-fearers in the Greco-Roman world who were incredibly interested in Judaism, but there are real hurdles for them. Um, social pain. Uh, you know, for example, one of the markers of being a male Jew is circumcision. And adult male circumcision is, you know, not something that a lot of people who like aren't raised in a community where that's normal. Like if you just went to a Roman citizen, you're like, hey, Roman, how'd you like to be circumcised today? The answer is usually a hard no, right? Like, uh, what are you talking about? Like, I have to do that to be part of this religion? And you're like, well, yes, you do. And like, well, like, how about this? I'll just be supportive of your religion. I'll, uh, you know, donate money to the cause and help you along. And hopefully your God will look out for me. But I can't make that step. Like, that's just, that's just too far for me. So Paul was facing a pretty difficult challenge in trying to encourage and persuade others to join his movement how did he do it what who is paul the persuader in these letters yeah so what he his message how it differs mostly from the message in jerusalem is two twofold you do not have to be circumcised the reason he gives is this that the judeans are god's chosen people and they have been chosen and sort of given this gift, right? He doesn't think of it as a burden. It's a gift to God's chosen people who have accepted this. But to someone who is an outsider, that would not be a gift. It would be an incredible burden. And so why would we force a non-Jew to take on what are going to be burdens for them? So there's no circumcision necessary. And then there's also this really convoluted problem with eating meat sacrificed to idols. So one of the big things in the Roman world is 
these great meals and banquets that elites would go to. Um, and when meat is at these banquets, it is almost always the result of a sacrifice to a god. There's a big sacrifice. It gets put in the markets. People have access to it. But that's the origin of this meat. So if you are told you can't eat meat sacrificed to idols, which is a rule in Judaism, what you're essentially saying is you cannot go to a Greco-Roman banquet feast meal situation and just eat the food offered to you. You have to immediately stand out from the crowd in a negative way and be like, oh, I'm sorry, I cannot eat that. Um, and so the, the thought is like, this this while it seems like a small hurdle, it's a huge social hurdle to tell a person who's trying to sort of like move up in Roman society, you can't really take part in these Roman banquets anymore. And what's so interesting is that he seems to wrestle with this one. It seems like this seems to be his answer. Hey, Paul, can I eat meat sacrificed to idols? <sighs> yes, you can, because I realize what an inconvenience it is. But it'd be better if you didn't, because God doesn't really like it. But on the other hand, I understand that it's very problematic and challenging for you. But if at all possible, I would avoid that situation. But if you're stuck in the situation and you know you have to do it, then I guess you can do it, but I'd rather you didn't, but I guess you can. That seems to be the answer he gives. So Paul's really trying to make his message as approachable and adaptable as possible. It sounds like he's really thinking about all of the different ways to bring more people into the faith. Yes. I think a big part of his message is accessibility. And this is sort of returning to one of your earlier questions that people have viewed this motive of accessibility and sort of like the waffling he does on the meat sacrifice to idols issue differently, right? So you have like some group of people who will say, this is a clear indication that Paul is sort of inauthentic, a waffler, just gives the answer that a group wants to hear, and he'll do anything to convert you, but he has like no core values. His only value is expansion and bringing people in at all costs, right? So that's like an interpretation that you'll hear. Um, I don't quite view him that way. I view him more as someone who does have a very clear set of ideas, but he is answering sort of different questions in each letter. So he sort of presents these ideas differently. And sometimes they are slightly in conflict with each other, but I think a lot of that is also just sort of dealing with the realities of the situation. And I think it's very challenging to think about uh, sort of like a pillar of a religion as dealing with the challenges of different situations. It's just much easier to be like, here are his statements. They are always um, consistent, and we can look at any one of them and say, this is the truth. And that is very challenging with Paul because of the situation that he writes. He doesn't write a treatise. It's not like, here are my thoughts on X. It's more like, Paul, we're having this problem. How should we solve it? And then he gives you his answer. So who was the audience for these letters? Who was asking him for guidance? So most of these are communities he's visited. So he has this really unique challenge, right? Like usually if you found a religion or a religious community, 
that's your community and then you're with them. Um, and then eventually there's a challenge of you die and now who leads your community. But he does it differently. His goal is not to build one community, but to spread Christianity everywhere. And so he'll go to a place for maybe a year and a half and really train them and really live out this movement for them so they can see it in action. But then he leaves and he says, okay, now it's up to you all to continue this. You have the knowledge. I'm a resource. You can you know, send me letters and I'll respond to them. But I have to go now and I have to go to another city and plant or you know, grow a community there. And so it's this really interesting challenge of he's in a place, then he leaves, and they're like, Paul, um, I got a tough one for you, Paul. Uh, uh, a Corinthian citizen here? So, I know you're going to like this, but our guy who's hosting our meetings, he is sleeping with his stepmother now. And now I agree, Paul, this is a heinous act. And had he not been the guy providing food and the meeting place, we obviously would have kicked him out. But we can't kick him out. What should we do? And and his answer to this particular one is like, are you monsters? Kick him out. What is wrong with you? But these are the types of questions he's dealing with, like really real questions. They're not like, Paul, I'm wondering uh, if, you know, when someone dies and what is salvation like, a lot of it is really actual real world questions. Now there are questions like what is salvation like, but much of the time it is just down to earth questions that you would be surprised to see sort of like preserved in a holy text. So is Paul part of a movement? Did he see himself as working with others on a shared goal or was he kind of a religious maverick? He was in his own vanguard and pushing the faith in a new way. I think kind of both. Um, especially at the beginning, he seems to have a partner, Barnabas. And again, this is where his letters versus this other document, Acts. Acts gives you much more information about this partnership. But his letters do confirm that he has this someone that he's a partner with Barnabas, and they seem to have a falling out at some point. But there are others like him. He is not alone, um, sort of traveling throughout the Greco-Roman world, converting people. There are other people doing this. It's a bit unclear how close he is with them. He's definitely aware of them and has to interact with them. So, for instance, one of my favorite um, interactions is there's a guy named Apollos that the Corinthians apparently love. And so he can't say, like, no, you should listen to me. Apollos is nothing. So instead he's like, I know Apollos is great, but I am the one who planted you. He's merely the waterer. And you're like, oh, dang, is he calling out Apollos there? Or is he, you know, saying, yes, he has an important role. I, I view it as him sort of asserting that I am the real guy here. Apollos is just helping you out, but I'm the authority that you need to listen to. And then we see this come into massive conflict um, later with those in Jerusalem. And that's that's something for a whole episode. It's one of my favorite topics. I, I wanted to write my dissertation on it. And my advisor was like, you do realize there's no evidence for this? And uh, it would be a very short dissertation. 
So speaking of evidence, this is something I've been wondering, is the Paul that we're talking about the same Paul that other people might reference in centuries later on? Is there one consistent Paul or does that change kind of over time? Ah, uh, that's a really good question. Um, Paul's influence definitely, or I shouldn't say definitely, we think that it sort of goes in and out a little bit. So there's an early writer, his name is Justin Martyr, um, and he's writing like, I believe it's around maybe the year 90, which is a little ways after Paul's death, you know, maybe, maybe 20, 30 years after Paul dies, and sort of... We envision Paul, especially with these other letters written by in Paul's name, that perhaps he gains influence and the school develops and then he becomes this influential figure. And then, like you were talking about with the Reformation, really becomes at the forefront as those scholars really focus in on him. But this guy, Justin Martyr, writing around 90, doesn't even mention him at all. And so we really wrestle with that and and try to come to grips with why is it that he doesn't reference him? Does he specifically not reference him because he's trying to make a point? Does he not reference him because Paul is not a household name at all and it's not until later that he becomes a household name? It's a very interesting question of what exactly is his influence throughout time. But certainly soon after that era, he does become very influential and it's not that surprising because we have these letters that were rounded up in his name. They become foundational pieces of, of what is the New Testament. Um, that his version of Christianity is the version that ends up winning out. Um, and so because of that, he is a, a very uh, critical figure. And Casey, we have his words. That's what makes me so fascinating in Paul, right? Like Jesus is an utterly fascinating case study, but we only have people writing about him, you know, 40 to 50 years later. Whereas with Paul, we have him in his own words in a very early period, probably like around the year 50 or so, which is really early in this movement, wrestling with real questions like this, Casey. Uh, one, one group writes to him, they're like, Paul, you are not going to believe this. Someone died. And he's like, yeah. My bad on that one. Like, I told you we were in the end times, and I still believe that to be true, but I seem to have been slightly wrong on my timeline, right? Like, it's not next week. It's not a month from now, but we are in the end times, um, but I need to modify sort of how I envision the end times to be. So let me ask, you have grappled directly with these letters. How is Paul as a writer and as a thinker, what's his style? How does he do what he does? That for me is one of the most interesting pieces of Paul because he is very different in each letter. He is very much a person who is interacting with a community at a certain time that has a certain attitude towards him. So I'll give you some examples that are polar opposites. So you have say, uh, there is a community in Galatia, and he writes a letter to them that is clearly very, very defensive. What seems to have happened is people from Jerusalem have gone to this community and said, Paul is wrong. 
you have to circumcise. I don't know why he told you that, but look, here is a historical document that proves that he is wrong. And so Paul writes them and is writing this fiery letter right from the first word. He's on the defensive. He's like, I am an apostle chosen by God. God chose me when I was in the womb of my mother. So top that one. And then he says, like, even if an angel from God tells you I'm wrong, that angel is wrong. And you're like, wow, Paul, you are just coming out firing. And then in other letters, he's like, hi, it's me, Paul, servant of God. No more than that. Just a person uh, interacting with you today in a friendly way. And you're like, wow, these letters couldn't be more different, so different that you wonder, like, are these even written by the same person? But the vocabulary is the same. Um, the types of answers are the same. It's just the presentation is so different. It is remarkable. So would you call him a pragmatist? Is he adapting and adjusting his answers to the community who's asking the questions? Is Are there any through lines that connect these letters, in your opinion? Yes, I'd say all that is true. If you gave me one word to describe Paul, it probably would be pragmatist and realist, right? Like he is dealing with a real world problem. And the problem is like your your eternal status is on the line. And I came and I taught you and I got to know you and I'm invested in your eternal status. And now because some other person has come in and told you there's this book out there that says something different than me, you're really going to listen to that book versus me and the words I delivered to you, and I'm now invested in you, and I don't want this to happen to you. So I would say definitely he is a pragmatist who is wrestling with these real complications that are coming to him of how are we going to handle this. As far as through lines, this is one of the great debates that some people will say there are no through lines, really. He's just a dude making it up as he goes. I don't agree with that at all. I think he definitely has through lines. Um, circumcision is certainly one. He is very consistent that he does not think you should be circumcised. And even the food uh, sacrifice to idols, while he sounds inconsistent, I think he's very consistent. He would love for you not to eat food sacrifice to idols. That's really the bottom line. But he knows that's that that's not incredibly realistic. So if his his answer is going to change based on how you ask it, like if you ask him, "Hey Paul, should I just randomly eat all the food I find?" He's gonna be like, "No, don't do that. Don't eat food sacrifice to idols." And if the question is, "Paul, I'm at an important dinner party. My social status is on the line. Am I allowed to eat food sacrifice to idols?" He's gonna say. Yeah, you can. I'd really rather you didn't, but I get it. I get your scenario. You can do that. So how have you come to your perspective on Paul? I mean, what accounts for the way that you see him? And maybe a follow-up after that would be, um, what would a critic of your perspective say? Oh, there are no critics. I I believe I'm perfection. <laughs> no, I think that's a good question. Um, it's, for me... I think it's because I am very interested in sort of the art of persuasion and how people interact with audiences. That's just something that naturally 
is interesting to me, uh, much more so than like his theology. Like you'll find book after book on like, what does Paul think about salvation? That doesn't interest me nearly as much as how does Paul interact with people? Uh, and my dissertation was on how does Paul present himself differently uh, to different communities for persuasion? And I, you know, interacted with all kinds of ancient works on how did the ancients think about persuasion, right? Like what would have been an appropriate technique to persuade you of something if you were an educated individual in the ancient world? So that colors a lot of how I think about Paul and I think why I am so willing to accept a Paul that seems to have theological inconsistencies because I don't consider myself a theologian who is going to pick apart every word of his theology, I'm more willing to accept small inconsistencies there and say that it's not that that's irrelevant, but that wasn't the main hurdle he was facing. The main hurdle he was facing was convincing you for your own good, by the way, that you should join this movement and not deviate now that you're in it. Whereas somebody who is really interested in theology would say, wow, you are really giving him a pass here. Like you are not interacting enough with these real problems that are in his text and don't have a good solution. And uh, you have not given me a satisfactory answer on what you think of this particular problem. That makes a lot of sense. So what would a more theologically minded person criticize your perspective for? I mean, imagine we have someone else here who disagrees with you. In what ways would they disagree? And, and how can we kind of understand that other perspective? Yeah, I could see someone kind of saying something like, okay, who cares how he presented himself to different communities? Uh, that's not super relevant to my work today as someone trying to understand like, what is the Christian perspective towards salvation, how you should behave, um, all of these other questions, which for me are certainly important, but they don't, they don't take up as much space for me in how I think of Paul. And like I said, I think um, a criticism would be like, you don't take seriously enough the inconsistencies where my criticism back would be, you are not taking seriously enough the fact that he is wrestling with actual questions, not creating a theological treatise. Because I think if we had that from him, like if, if a question had been, Paul, I have forgotten everything you've taught me. Can you please send me a document with all of the theology well thought out? I think he could put something together that's pretty good. Maybe he wouldn't be as good as, um, some of the great theologians that we have developed after him. But I think he could put something together that's that's consistent, whereas I think other people would look at him and say, no, no, he's this wildly inconsistent, itinerant traveler that's just trying to bring people in without even really having a fully developed message. He's just throwing it out there to see what actually works, and that's that's just not how I see him. So along those lines, would Paul have self-identified as a Christian? Was he aware of himself as being part of um, this broader Christian community? Yeah, so by the time we get to Paul, 
we have a clearly identified movement. At least we think we do. Um, the book of Acts especially really wants to illustrate this difference that now there are these this group of people called Christians. Paul was specifically um, a Jew who is, in his own words at least, um, a really accomplished Judean, and he is now persecuting this other group, this other group, right, outside of what he would call Judaism. Um, and so, yeah, from that perspective, I would, you, do you mind if I read you a little bit of his biography that he provides for us? Not at all. I all right. So that. in Philippians three, he says, um, and this is sort of like in response to people who are saying, Paul doesn't know anything. I am maybe an apostle or maybe I'm the brother of Jesus. I am a real Judean who knows what is happening. So his response is this. If anyone else has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And right there, some people will look at that and be like, whoa, blameless? No one's blameless under the law, Paul. Are you claiming to be perfect? And this is, again, where I cut Paul a little more slack, and I would say, I don't think he's trying to say he never sinned. He's saying that under sort of the rules of how did Judaism works, he did it well. And so you can't sort of uh, attack him based on his pedigree. He's not like this guy who was like, Judaism, it's a thing, I guess. I don't really like it, though, so I'm going to do this other thing. His argument is, no, I was as dedicated to Judaism as anyone. So the fact that I've made these small alterations doesn't demonstrate my lack of dedication. It demonstrates the need that we have to really expand this movement to others. So is Paul's story a, an example or a model for later people to follow? I mean, is he seeing himself or his own, uh, conversion, so to speak, as a path others can take. Yeah, certainly. Um, I think it's also important to sort of lay out that the argument, at least, is that his initial move, his initial expansion is specifically to non-Judeans. Mm. Um, and that there's this agreement with those in Jerusalem we're not entirely sure exactly what the terms of this agreement are, but it seems to be that, okay, you, we will sort of, su okay, I was going to say support. I think a better way is to say we'll turn a, a blind eye to what you're doing as long as you don't mess with Judeans. Because, to be honest, we don't care that much what the Gentiles are doing, right? Like, they're doing it wrong anyway. And so if you're going to bring, like, a wrong version of Judaism to them and they think they're doing it right. That's not really our responsibility anyway. So go ahead and do that where conflicts start to come up, especially we think is when people who um, are non-Jews and Jews are like having these meetings together. That's when stuff really starts to become problematic because then it's like, okay, we were fine with you 
sort of like bringing a wrong version to the Gentiles. But you can't tell other Jews that this is the message because that's not the real message. Interesting. So based on what I'm hearing, I'm curious to know if the, let's say, context of Paul reaching out to other groups and interacting with local authorities, was it permissive? Was it uh, broad-minded? Or was it based on conflict and even sometimes violence? I mean, was he able to do this without fear of personal attack or injury? Or what was the sort of social context? Yeah, that's such a great question. Because according to him, uh, he, in, in many of his letters, he refers to either being in prison or previously being imprisoned. Um, he refers to many like beatings that he's undergone for this. So in his words, he has um, been inflicted with a large amount of punishment, of problems for doing this. And so it sort of also plays into his bio- biographical message that I'm not just this guy taking the easy road, right? This has not been an easy road by any stretch. This has been filled with personal strife and problems. So I, I think that's a really part important part of his message. And is that a theme in these early figures of Christianity, this personal suffering for their faith? Yeah, definitely. We see this um, quite a bit. And it's, you know, a lot of times it's a callback to Jesus and, you know, the suffering that he underwent. Um, But other authors will specifically reference Paul. Um, one author that I've spent quite a bit of time with is Ignatius of Antioch. And he's writing about, we're not entirely sure, maybe 30 to 50 years after Paul. And he specifically quotes him in a number of spots. So much so that we know he has to be interacting with, with Paul. Because at one point, Paul makes this really weird reference where he calls himself an abortion or an aborted fetus. And we have no idea what this means. Like we have just poured over Greek text to figure out, is there any context where anyone has ever used this word like this? And the answer is no. Paul's the only one, uh, you know, that we have record of. And Ignatius uses it in an even less informed way where he just like throws it out there to kind of be like, Hey, Paul said it quoting Paul here. And so you're like, you see this guy who really is trying to connect himself with this and it's it's in this suffering mentality and then we'll see in later episodes that suffering and martyrdom becomes a really critical part of christianity as they get you know rejected by the empire by the roman empire and they're growing in numbers and they're really becoming a threat because the threat is hey we're struggling as a roman empire why are we struggling what made us so great ah yes the gods and now we have these people in our empire that are claiming the gods don't even exist. So, of course, the gods are going to be mad. So we need to punish these people. So we do see suffering throughout the early history of Christianity and oftentimes connected to either Jesus or Paul or both. So you've mentioned Acts a number of time, uh, times. What is this? When you are talking about Paul in 
acts compared to his letters? I mean, what is this text, this story? Yeah, so Acts is um, a historical document. We don't know the date it's written. We think, uh, I'll, I'll even go farther to say, almost every scholar thinks it is written by the same author who wrote uh, the Gospel according to Luke. Uh, we think that that author wrote a two-part document. The first part being the sort of biographical, biographical story of Jesus. And the second part of the document is what happens after he dies. And so the beginning of that document is really focused on the early apostles and what they do and how they start to expand the mission. But once you get to about uh, close to the halfway point, Paul just completely takes over that story. It's kind of, it's almost like a, how did the movement get from Jerusalem to Rome? This is the answer. And the answer really is this character, Paul. And so in that story, it's kind of like a hero's journey where you see Paul as the great persecutor of the church. And then by the end, he's the one who is taking on all of this pain and punishment and traveling and and eventually getting arrested for this movement and bringing it to Rome. And it's, it's difficult because it's, it's just not well supported by his letters. And there are places that seem to be in direct conflict. And so the question that scholars are often left wrestling with is, is it only inaccurate in the places where there are conflict? Or does this conflict reflect a greater lack of historicity in this document because specifically it is trying to tell a story. It's trying to tell the story of how does this movement get to Rome, and we want to tell it in a way that is as heroic as possible and in a way that makes it sound as legitimate as possible. So like these um, problems that are brewing between the group in Jerusalem and Paul, those are like, acknowledge like yeah there was a small problem and then it was 100 percent resolved and they were 100 percent on the same page so this movement that has gone to rome is the exact movement that's in jerusalem with their approval and that part especially seems to be um not historically accurate and and it makes me as a historian really question acts as a whole where other people would say no, I'm willing to build Paul's life around the story in Acts because there's so much more information. I'm just going to alter it in certain spots. And so, for instance, I have a friend who's an Acts historian, and we are great friends until we talk about the value of Acts. And then it's like we're bitter enemies, and we have to pull back and be like, hey, man, we're still friends, right? Right? We're still good? Okay, cool, cool. So that makes me wonder... You know, in your studying of these texts and in your scholarship, when you confront a challenge like different interpretations or a lack of evidence or your own skepticism, how do you resolve that? What do you do as a thinker to find the right answer according to you? Yeah, that's really hard. Um, I think for me, much of my life is built around humility. And so I will often approach it from, I don't really know anything about this, right? All I can do is read texts and grapple with information and reach my own conclusions and understand that I very well may be incorrect in my interpretations um, and just accept that 
and I think what's interesting is much like Paul comes off as a waffler to different people. I think I do as well. Um, cause I've had people at conferences come up to me just intent on convincing me that their interpretation is correct. And at the end of the conversation, I'm always like, yeah, that sounds really reasonable. I really like where you're coming from. And I think they leave the conversation being like, wow, that guy was easy to convince. What a waffler. And I'm thinking more like, I don't 100% agree with what you said, but it doesn't mean you're wrong. Like, you made a really compelling argument, and um, I don't, I'm not, like, my whole worldview hasn't changed, but I thought it was a really good, compelling argument, and I could see a situation where you are right. Um, I don't, I'm not going to alter my works based on this and, you know, suddenly adopt your ideas, but I do think you had a lot to say there that was very valuable. And that makes sense. But at the end of the day, if you're writing something about Paul or if someone's asking you a question, you have to come to some sort of considered judgment. So how do you choose? How do you decide to pick or present one answer as opposed to another? Yeah, I think a lot of that is based on the sort of biography that I've crafted of Paul and just what resonates as true to me, which sounds pretty weak, I've got to admit. But um, I think that my careful reading of Paul's letters has led me to believe that he is a pragmatist. And I try to really view him in his historical situation rather than pulling him out of his historical situation. I think it's very easy to pull him out and then read say his theology as if he's a theologian i would much rather read him as a human in a really difficult historical situation that he's grappling with and if if a reading really gels with that i'm much more willing to go in that direction than any interpretation that feels to me like he's being pulled out of his context so i think that's how i would answer that that i feel like Historical context is utterly critical and sort of the driving force of all of my interpretations of Paul. And then, and then a corollary of that is if it's not how the ancients sort of thought, talked, and presented themselves, then I think the interpretation has less merit. And I've spent a lot of time immersed in Greek and Roman rhetoric to figure out how exactly they do interact with one another. And I just think that's a step that a lot of people have not taken because if what your interest is in is theology and how it affects modern Christianity, I think that's a very different way of interacting with his text than how did it affect him and how he even thought and wrote and conceived of this material. So I, I think an interesting place to, to conclude here is this controversial statement that I don't think he wrote his own letters. I think he had a scribe that wrote for him because that's how everyone did it in the ancient world. Like we conceive of modern letter writers as a person in their office with their lamp late at night just thinking about theological issues and like, ah, salvation, how will I solve this? And the way I view Paul is, as an ancient receiving a letter from a community and saying, scribe, write down for me this letter. But ancient scribes weren't stenographers. Only one person, Cicero, seemed to have a stenographer 
So more likely than not, what happened is he would, quote, write a letter. This scribe would write down notes, write the letter for him, bring it back to him. He would read it and go, no, 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 no. This doesn't fully capture what I wanted. This needs to change. This needs to change. I need to be angrier here. This needs to be more forceful. And it's a back and forth process with a scribe. Whereas, I don't want to say most, but many, many people who think about Paul as the letter writer, when he's angry in his letters, they think of him as like, give me my pen. And then like angrily dashing off this letter and being like, take this letter to those guys. They need to hear what's what. And I just don't think that's how Paul composed these. And my evidence is simply that's not how ancients composed their letters. I've read many books on ancient letter writing. And these are sort of the steps that I think a lot of Pauline scholars don't take because it's just not something that interests them. Right. And it's like, and that again, maybe my own bias of just like being fascinated in how ancients wrote thought and actually like literally wrote down letters. Most people don't spend, you know, a whole summer reading letters from a garbage dump in Egypt just to read Bob uh, saying, here is my mule, Jim. Have a good one. Like, <laughs> they don't do that. So let me ask one final question. If someone were interested in getting started on kind of a deeper investigation into Paul, where should they start? Who should they read or what should they read? What a great question. What should you read to get started in Paul? Um. This is going to sound really funny, but one of my favorite books is called Ancient Letters and the New Testament, written by Clauck. And it's not actually about Paul specifically, but it is about this premise of, like, how does ancient letter writing work? And I think that's a really important place to start. Excellent. Uh, another book that I think is really useful is Paul and Palestinian Judaism by E.P. Sanders. The problem with this book is it's definitely a book written for scholars, but and it's dated at this point, but I think it's a good sort of start in thinking about like how he functions as a, as a letter writer. There are so many amazing books out there about Paul. Uh, it is hard to recommend just one. And what about the letters themselves? Would you start with any of those? Start with reading his letters? Yeah. Oh, yeah. You have to start with his letters, Casey. That's that's the most important place to start. And I think most people would go to Romans first because that's like the best representation of his theology. But I also feel like it's the worst representation of him as a letter writer. Um, I think probably the best representations of that are his letter to the Philippians. One of my very favorites is his letter to Philemon. It's not even one page long. And why I think this letter is so great is because it's much more representative of what ancient letters look like. When you receive a letter from Paul, you're like, what is this? A letter is supposed to be like 10 lines of text and you've sent me this monstrosity that's going to take me a weekend to read? What What is happening here? Whereas this letter Philemon is a really, like, actual letter where this guy writes to Paul and and Paul is addressing this community that has had this problem where there's a slave that has run away from the master 
and found Paul, and Paul has like brought him into this Christian movement, and he now is writing to this guy, and he's like, all right, here's the deal. Not only do I want you to like accept the slave back and not punish him to an absurd degree for running away, you need to accept him as a Christian brother. Like, the the ask that he's making here is so large that it is hard for us, um, for anyone who hasn't really studied this historical context, to even grapple with that he is asking this person an impossible task, uh, but he's still asking it. And the way he asks it is so fascinating, where he's like, I'm not telling you you have to. I'm just telling you you really should. Well, Kevin, this was enlightening and i now know a tremendous amount about paul all right casey thanks so much for um hanging out today uh it's been a lot of fun for me this was a hard episode for me to even conceive of because paul is just this figure that i've spent so much time dealing with that it was hard to even be like okay so we've got 28 shows coming on paul um, what's the first one going to be like? So thank you so much, uh, everyone out there. I hope you enjoyed it. And I hope you enjoyed it. Our second episode of Unscriptured and stay tuned for more.